everybody. Welcome to Well, This Sucks, our podcast about our lovely friend Danielle's fight against breast cancer. I'm Heather. I'm Tana. And I'm Danielle. And today we have April Stearns from Wildfire Mag. Hi, April. Woo, woo, woo. Hi. Wildfire, in their recent issue, their caregiver issue, featured our podcast, which thank you so much mm-hmm. for doing that and working with Danielle on yeah. that. It's beautiful. I'm looking at it right now. It truly is a very beautiful publication. Like the packaging, the photograph, everything about the paper (laughs) is beautiful. It's so well sized. The size. I love. I love it. The stickers. The stickers. The matches. (laughs) The matches. I just use the matches right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Down to the packaging. We became familiar with Wildfire initially through Instagram and then actually... April, did you reach out to Danielle to contribute a piece or Danielle, did you reach out to April first? I don't remember. I think I reached out to you <laughs> first. Yeah, I've been a fan of you guys for a little while, uh, probably via Instagram also. And as I was starting to kind of think about this caregiver issue and the idea of caregiving being something that extends well beyond that person who promises to love you in sickness and in health and it's really more moms and dads and friends and strangers you guys just immediately popped into my brain so Mm -hmm. and you know secretly hoping and trying to figure out a way to uh, trick you all to being in the magazine anyway so it all worked out perfectly (laughs) well thank you thank you yeah thank you Mm -hmm. and like if you did it you got to us first but it was on my to-do it was on my big to-do because I was like, oh my God, what is this amazing publication? So let's talk about it. Uh, well, first, April, where are you from? Sure. Yeah, I am in Santa Cruz. So just up the oh. coast from you guys a few hours. I grew up in California and not too far away from here and then moved uh, over. I think I grew up about only maybe 15 miles actually from Santa Cruz. But when I actually moved to Santa Cruz was to go to the University of California mm. here and then just stayed on. So cool. yeah, everything for wildfire kind of happens here. Although mm. I do have contractors and teammates actually all around the world. It's kind of funny. Um, there's two of us in the U S and then the designer and the editor are both, overseas uh hannah the designer is in switzerland and my editor is in england oh my gosh yeah amazing cool that's cool international Mm -hmm. international baby i know (laughs) it's so fancy what is wildfire it focuses on like young women with breast cancer is that correct correct Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I had breast cancer myself when I was 35. I had stage three breast cancer. And that was in 2012 for me. But even now, I actually should back up and say at that time, I knew no one else who Mm. was my age who had breast cancer. I was the only one in the in my oncology office my age. There were a few women who were not old women, but they were still older than me and in a different phase of life. They had, you know, more grown children and things like that. So at that time, I became more aware of the fact that there weren't a lot of resources for the younger women getting breast cancer. And I really wasn't aware of how common I 
I hesitate to say common, but it seems like more and more young women are being diagnosed. Mm -hmm. But at that point, you know, I wasn't clued into any Facebook groups or anything like that. So as, as I kind of moved away from my treatment year, I felt that I really still wanted to connect with others who could relate to my situation. I wanted to hear their stories and I just wasn't finding them. And so long story short, this idea started growing in the back of my mind to have a magazine and that I would love to have this resource that I could kind of curl up with. And I didn't really know what that would be like to launch a magazine. And I think sort of fortunately, I didn't know what that would be like because (laughs) then I probably would have been really daunted and scared. But I have a journalism background. I also have a background in event planning, which translated well because in that part of my life, I was recruiting speakers for different sessions on conference agendas. And it turns out that's very similar to kind of developing an issue of a magazine and recruiting writers. Um, It just turns out to be a strength that I have. And so I put it all together. It started as a digital, solely a digital magazine for the first uh, year or so of its life. I always do it on a theme, the idea being that as young women going through breast cancer, we have very specific things that are um, troublesome or that we want to connect on and relate to, whether it's body issues or mental health issues or fertility, you know, and some of it extends into the older women who are having breast cancer. But I wanted to make a resource that was specifically for women diagnosed under 42 and I wanted to do it thematically and not have it just be everything breast cancer all the time. Right. I really wanted to dig into those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so, that's awesome because then, I mean, thank you. everyone who, I mean, cause I'm looking at them and I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. I know that we've, I say the Royal we, even though, you know, I'm speaking for Danielle, but like, oh my God, we, this has been a struggle and I can find it in this issue. I don't have to dig mm-hmm. through every single issue to find stuff about like body image issue, you know, um, mm-hmm. it was just mm-hmm. very cool exactly. to see how specific it was. Um, you know, I know that like Danielle, you had talked about in previous episodes having like body image issues. So that it was really cool to then go on to wildfire and see that there is like a whole issue dedicated mm-hmm. to this and young women with breast cancer and how they, how it's related. Right. So, yeah. And it's kind of cool to be able to dig into an issue really deeply because then we can get a perspective from all the different stages, all the different, um, you know, there's a lot of different ages there between 18 and 42, as far as, you know, whether you're doing it with kids at home or whatever your particular life looks like. I'm able to really get into each theme and try to cover it from all those different perspectives. So hopefully someone coming to wildfire and reading it sees themselves in in those pictures or in those stories. It's such a beautiful magazine. You've done a really great job. Like, how did you design this? It's so beautiful. Like the font, the colors, everything. Uh, I guess like, what is the process of curating this magazine? So I, um, a lot of the design, I have to really tip my hat to Hannah. Um, she was able to, when she came aboard and started working with me with wildfire, she was the one who really was able to pull the aesthetic out of my brain and make it look the way it does on the page there. 
And what we've always said from the beginning is that I wanted it to be beautiful. I really wanted it not to feel noisy. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this kind of extends also into my decision not to have ads, but I just wanted it to be a break. You know, there's so much, our world is so busy and crazy, but particularly I think when you're going through something like a serious diagnosis or treatment or whatever, there's just so much noise on the internet and everywhere right now that I just wanted to create this space that felt peaceful. I, like there was room to breathe. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Peaceful. Um, That's exactly. So, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. Yeah. So Hannah, you know, she's like, like I said, she just was really able to take that idea and really run with it. And I think over time, there's, you know, a color palette has kind of emerged. Each, each issue is a little bit different with that regard. But overall, there's kind of a wildfire look and feel, I think, at this point. And yeah. it's just been building on building on the past. And honestly, it's just, it's kind of a gut feel. It's like this this appeals to me. And so therefore I think it'll appeal to others, you know? Yeah. I mean, you nailed it and it's really, you know, I've been on the website and everything. It's cool to see how it's evolved and then, but Mm -hmm. how it's still Mm -hmm. all cohesive at Mm -hmm. the same time. So Mm -hmm. I am obsessed with this photo from the issue number three, volume three. It's insane. It's so beautiful. So for the cover, the flower crown, sorry. Yeah. The flower crown. For the body oh, issue. Yes. Shay Sharp and that that image is incredible. And what was so great about that issue is that Shay uh, submitted that photo um, when we started talking about the cover. And so then she hooked me up with the mm. photographer. And then even beyond that, I learned that the flower crown was made for her by another survivor. Like it's oh it's almost like so layered the yeah. story of that photo. It's and it's really resonated with mm-hmm. people. Just, yeah. It's yeah. Incredible. It's gorgeous. It is. Truly. Oh, my gosh. So you <laughs> you don't specifically have your own f- photographer and shoot the cover photos. It's just no. pulled from people in the issue. So it's a collaboration. Exactly. Yeah. That's nice. mm-hmm. Yeah. At this point, it would be wonderful to grow to a point where I could orchestrate and put together photo shoots. And I do have some ideas for that where I want to do some collaborations between people that maybe have never had pictures taken together before or, you know, Mm -hmm. some stories that are more like that. But at this point, it is, um, it's the, the, it seems like a lot of people just have incredible photos, you know, nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, Danielle's photos are really incredible too. And I know you guys did those for the podcast, but they translated so great. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Shout out to Lauren. Yeah. El Nene. So how, like, I mean, sometimes you reach out to people, but how can people submit pieces to wildfire, get in touch with you? I guess it's normally something mm-hmm. we ask at the end, but I'm asking it now because I asked. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So on the website, I have a contact us link. And on that page, which is at wildfirecommunity.org, on the contact us page, there is a way to submit a, a submission proposal. And on that same page, I have the upcoming issues and the themes. And, and so it's an editorial calendar going forward, I mm. think about maybe a quarter of the way into 2019 at this point. Mm. 
But what I always say to people, too, is if you have a story that doesn't really seem to fit within a theme that I have put there as an upcoming theme, just still go ahead and submit your idea because I might be able to see a, a connection to a theme that I've been thinking about, or we could make it work for an upcoming theme. And sometimes you're just too close to your own story to see mm-hmm. it in a variety of angles. Mm-hmm. So sure. I, um, yeah, I accept submissions through the website there or by email, my emails on that same page. And also if people have photos or art or poetry, you know, it doesn't have yeah. to be a full length essay either to, to contribute. That's awesome. How long does it take to develop an issue and how do you come up with the themes? Yeah, so the themes, I mean, one of the useful things about the fact that I have had breast cancer myself is that a lot of the themes continue to grow organically, just as the magazine did, where there are issues that I'm grappling with or conversations that I'm having with people who have been diagnosed. Um, Occasionally, someone will pitch an idea for a whole theme to me. That was actually how the mental health issue came Mm -hmm. about. Um, But it just, it's really, really close to the heart and just growing out of issues that are seem to be stuff that people are dealing with. Like the body image issue Mm -hmm. is something that's so perennial in terms of conversations that happen online or in person with, with young women going through it. The caregiver issue uh, came about from wanting to give space for others who are more, you know, maybe not the the fighter or the survivor themselves, but more people outside of that and trying to figure out how to give a voice there occasionally as well. I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. want to try to make wildfire everything for everyone, Mm -hmm. but that seemed to be something that the caregivers needed because they're so often unsung and kind of in the shadows. And I wanted to honor that role as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But your question about how long, (laughs) <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> um, to your question about how long it takes, it's uh, I usually have the calendar kind of formatted out, you know, like I said, maybe six months or not six months, but uh, maybe nine, nine months ahead. And then I'm recruiting stories kind of all the time on those pieces yeah. out as long as I have the calendar. But then the nitty gritty of really pulling it together kind of happens in the last two months before the issue goes live. So right now I'm working on our October issue, which is our metastatic breast cancer issue. I'm gathering. Yeah, I'm gathering the last submissions for that and then next week will be kind of a crazy week for me because I'll really be pulling together all of the photos all of the pieces making sure there's no holes and doing all of the editing that I do before I then send the whole package off to Hannah and then she will start drafting it and then there's a whole nother month of going back and forth on the layout and the the edits that have, I think we edit it maybe four or five times at that point. So all month long, we'll be editing and mm-hmm. sharing it with the contributors and making sure that everyone is happy with mm-hmm. how it, how it's coming together. Man, is this a, is this a full-time job? I was just going to ask that. <laughs> or do you have, <laughs> it, it sounds like it. it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm very lucky that I'm able to work on this full-time because it definitely takes, yeah. takes all the hours that, that right. I have. We're all lucky that you get to do that because then we get to reap the benefits. (laughs) It's true. 
you you went all in baby you're mm-hmm. doing this full time mm-hmm. and then you don't have ads which is so admirable um especially Thank for you. something like this where yeah like you said it's a break it's like a you wanted it to feel like there's room to breathe so obviously people don't mm-hmm. want to be burdened with like ads for medication and stuff like that I assume I'm speculating as to like this is why you made this decision but is that why you made this decision <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just didn't want it to feel the information to feel biased in any kind of way. I wanted it to be just the voices of the survivors and fighters themselves. And I also feel like there's limited space in the world for those voices. Like you often get information that's more written from, say, a doctor or a research, you know, scientist or someone who works for a pharmaceutical or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's often information out there, but it's coming from a a different place. And I wanted to make a place where you could hear a personal story that isn't advising you to do one thing or another, just offering Mm -hmm. someone's experience. And I can't, um, I mean, there's not enough hours in the day or money in the bank to make an issue that's 200 pages. So I am, I'm working, you know, within a, a limited amount of space. And so I felt that it was very important to make that space specifically for those voices. Yeah. But like you say, I mean, that's a monetary decision as well. It makes it a little bit trickier, but I also have faith that doing it this way is what the readers want as well. And that has been, I'm trying to say that that I'm, I'm getting good response Mm -hmm. from that decision. Yeah. So all of the money that, that people spend on the subscriptions just goes straight back into the magazine. Mm -hmm. It's, it's pretty expensive deciding to make something in print, but that was also another decision that I felt was important. You know, some people prefer to read things digitally. Some people prefer to read things in print. And I love that I'm able to just give people what, whatever, you know, style works for them. Mm -hmm. And also very, um, on a very biased note, I am a paper person and I like things to be tangible. I like Mm -hmm. to curl up in bed with it. And that's just kind of what I wanted. And it's been really awesome that so many people also feel that way because if you do a google search on magazines and things like that you'll hear like print is dead everything's Mm -hmm. digital but it's been really nice in this space that people are responding to the print um so yeah so all the money that comes in for those subscriptions or the single issue purchases or even the i have a few t-shirts and things like that a little bit of merchandise all that stuff just goes straight back into the magazine um and then I don't know if you are aware of this, but I also spend or send away $2 for every subscription to both Metaviver and the Cancer Couch Foundation mm, to amazing. encourage and support research for stage four breast cancer. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> awesome. I did know that because I'm a stalker. <laughs> a researcher, not a stalker. I'm a researcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is something to having this as print like even though I'm not directly affected by a cancer diagnosis um, personally, but you know, knowing Danielle and just like going through the journey with her and, mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm affected in that way, but um, with my own like research, you, you Google online, you like try to find some answers in a way or make sense of certain things. And 
as far as like doctors or certain articles, it's kind of one note. So with this, it definitely mm-hmm. dives into more like lifestyle and other aspects of a diagnosis that you don't generally think about or know until you're actually affected by it. So when you're like researching all the time, you're like Googling stuff and always like reading on the computer and it just seems, yeah, intangible. And it you're just like, okay, I, I'm reading this and I know it's one-sided in a way. So it's nice to have something in print and to like feel... It feels more connected to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I agree. (laughs) That's what I was trying to say. Sorry. Thanks, Heather. (laughs) Well, yeah, this, it feels like warmer, cozier, you know, not as sterile. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just feeling more connected to it because you're physically touching it and looking at these gorgeous photos of like people or people associated with it, or just reading these beautiful articles and feeling connected in a way mm-hmm. that you hadn't before, where it was just like a sterile medical environment. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. I also think that there's something different about reading a magazine in your hand. I don't know about you guys, but I tend to read a magazine so differently than I read books because I dip in and out. Mm-hmm. I sometimes mm-hmm. start at the end and work back to the front, or maybe I've just been looking for something specific. And it's nice having it in print because you can do that and then you remember to come back to it. Whereas maybe, um, maybe others have mastered this more than I have digitally, but I tend to read and then I'm gone, you know, I move on to the next thing. I don't necessarily dip back and forth the way I do with a book or a magazine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's definitely true. Sometimes I have the intention. I'll have like a gajillion tabs open. Like I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this. And I close them all. I have so many. (laughs) If I were to open my, yeah. My internet right now. My internet. Internet. Open tabs. Internet. <laughs> oh, Siri. <laughs> no, don't call Siri. Don't call Siri right now. She's not invited. What, 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 what did I ask? Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I mean, you touched on this a bit. What do you want the future of wildfire to look like? I mean, are you happy where it's at? You just, like, want to see where it goes? Or you want it to be the the big one? I don't, you know <laughs> The big Heather's one. pumping her fist today. I know. She's flailing her arms. <laughs> World dominating. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like pinky in the brain. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so when I first started it, the print, going to print was kind of the big goal. And it was amazing when it happened. And I should say, I mean, in case people haven't really been aware of Wildfire for very long, that the print part of it is relatively new. That was just, I'm, I guess we're in September already. Wow. But it just started in January that that became available. And so that was kind of the big, you know, next frontier for me was the print. Now that I'm there and I've kind of ironed out some of the issues around the printing and the mailing. And I mean, that's like a whole yeah. different thing than when you have a digital product. But now that I feel like I've got that a little bit more sorted, my next goal, I would say, is to go to actually monthly. Right now, I publish every other month. So it would be great if it was coming out monthly. And to do that, would probably need to grow the team. Um, and then I do have plans and ideas for some in-person type meetups where we could talk about writing, talk about getting your story out. People could practice writing if they want and kind of just yeah. facilitate some of the in-person things that are growing with the magazine and you feel this connection, but to put some faces behind that as well is, is the ultimate goal. 
That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I feel the goose. You know, mm-hmm. I get the good feels <laughs> running, hearing about it. Mm-hmm. Like goosebumps in a mm-hmm. good way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have visceral reactions. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> yeah. Very well, you guys are lucky, actually, because when I do finally get to that point, it'll probably be California. So I'm I know. seeing a road trip in your, in yeah. your future. Ooh. I was <laughs> thinking that exact thing. I was like, well, we are right here. So <laughs> how convenient. Good. Awesome. Are you comfortable talking about your own experience with breast cancer? I'd love to hear about the specifics about what you went through, actually. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I'm very comfortable. Absolutely. Um, so you said you were stage three, and you were diagnosed in 2012. Yes, I was um, 35 at that point. Actually, my diagnosis came right within a week of my birthday, which. I keep hearing. I don't know if there's something about that or that's just um, a, just a huge coincidence and it kind of sticks in our brains. But oh. it was just a week after I turned 35. I was actually breastfeeding at the time. I have a oh. child and mm. I found this lump. And I um, I remember that night actually after I, so I nursed her to sleep, which was kind of just where we were at in our, she was kind of starting to taper off, but anyway, got her down to sleep and then went into my husband and said, Hey, would you feel this? Like, do you, does this feel like something to you? And I just remember the look on his face and uh, the blood just, it it just drained and he went white and he was like, what is that? Actually, I think he said, what the F is. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, um, then I knew, okay, yeah, there is really something there. So I made an appointment with my gynecologist. And at that point, you know, everyone was like, well, your breastfeeding is probably just a milk related something. And you hear those stories. So was it like, um, sorry to backtrack a little bit. What was it exactly? Like, how would he explain what he felt? Um, I think he would have described it if he were here as just being hard and large and Mm. not there before. I think that was the thing that struck us was like, where did that come from? Because it, it really had not been felt before. It wasn't something that I had kind of been, you know, feeling and fingering off and on and it was growing. It Mm -hmm. just seemed to appear out of nowhere. And, um, by the time that it was measured, it was measuring at seven centimeters, which is enormous. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have large breasts or I had large breasts anyway. And so it wasn't um, physically, you couldn't see it and see a change in my breast. But when it was felt, it was really large. And my diagnosis ended up being HER2 positive. So mm-hmm. eventually my oncologist told me that, you know, that's a very fast growing strain of of breast cancer. And so he just you know, corroborated the fact that, yeah, you really didn't feel it last month and now it's here Mm -hmm. and it probably wasn't even there before. And now it's here and it's big and it was traveling. It was already in my lymph nodes. Um, hence the stage three. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I went through all of the, the, I did the chemo and the radiation and the surgery. I opted not to have reconstructive surgery. I just had my left breast removed. Mm -hmm. So I'm a uniboober now. But didn't you have a, was it a silicone? Didn't I you had have something? A, a prosthesis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so my daughter, it turned out, felt, she was more traumatized 
by the removal of the breast than I realized. Oh, wow. And I think that that really stemmed from the fact that it was kind of hers in her opinion. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was it was definitely something that she felt very connected to in a way that I really didn't know or acknowledge when it was, I was going through it. Like I was just, you know, let's remove it. Let's, let's just get it done and off and out. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how traumatizing that was for her until after the fact, when, um, when she shared with me that she wanted the cancer to be gone. And I was like, Oh, you know, it, it is gone now. And she said, well, your breast didn't grow back. And right, that's the when normalcy. I kind of realized, like, yeah, for her, it was just this, like, walking reminder of yeah. that trauma. So mm. I went through the process of getting a prosthetic. And I thought at the time it was going to just be, like, my party boob. And I would just wear it, you know, now <laughs> and then. Um, but as it, it turned out I wore it every day for mm. the about five years. And then... Um, I don't know. Have you guys, I don't, Daniel, I don't know if you have ever seen them, but they're, they're like these blobs of silicone mm-hmm. and it turned out that they can self-destruct and explode mm-hmm. and no get really nasty also. Um, so I wore this thing for five years and then it started springing leaks mm-hmm. and um, just got kind of disgusting. I was like taping it up with duct tape. It's so humiliating to say that, but um no, it girl, became this really it. funny thing. You gotta do yeah. what you got to do. <laughs> so it was an external well, prosthetic. Yeah. It's an external, yeah, that you just put in a pocket in your mm. bra, which is cool. There's so many great bras. Oh, yes. Okay. Now. Yeah. So I would just put it on and off every day. And then it just got too nasty. This was earlier this year. Um, so I got a new, you have to have a prescription to get it. And you have to go to a, like a specialty pharmacy, basically. And I just it was kind of just one more thing to do. And I ended up kind of putting it off and started just not wearing it and experimenting with just being asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at a point where I don't think I will replace it. I mean, I guess I might maybe go back to the party food idea where I just have it in case (laughs) it looks better, you know, with some dress or something looks better with Mm -hmm. the symmetry, but at this point, I finally, finally feel comfortable in my skin just being. And how's your daughter? Excited. She is fine with it. She, I, she's older now, and at this point, I wondered if it would be sort of embarrassing to her that it's this like open difference and open reminder. But she's always been such a great supporter, and she, she says she doesn't care. So, oh. wait, how old is she now? She's ten now. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Double digits already? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. <laughs> if I were in your position, I would not have expected my child to have to have such a strong bond with my boob. <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes I sense, know. but I guess I didn't mm-hmm. I wouldn't have anticipated that either, you know. So that's very interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think one of the things I learned from that or it really drove home for me is that the the diagnosis doesn't just happen to the person having the cancer. It really is happening to your mm-hmm. family, to your friends. You know, as you guys know, it's it's affecting everyone around you in really different ways and really specific ways. And I think that, you know, were my daughter on the phone, she would she would tell a completely different story to you about her experience of my breast cancer, even though she was so young at that time. 
my husband would tell you a totally different story. You know, as it goes out, these ripples goes out, go out. I think it's a mistake to discount that it's, that it's not profound for everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, we got to get your husband on the show. We got to get your daughter on the show. (laughs) I want to hear all the sides. That's true. You know, um, I'm also curious. So how did you come to decide to be a, to not get a breast implant or just Mm -hmm. be, yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's interesting because I mostly made the decision to not do reconstruction because I wanted to minimize the number of surgeries Mm -hmm. that I was going to have. That for me kind of stemmed from, I think, being a mom and really being sort of traumatized by the fact that breast cancer was happening to our family. And I felt Mm -hmm. really guilty about that. Mm -hmm. And one way I felt that I could get back to normal as quickly as possible was to minimize those surgeries. Mm -hmm. And I really wasn't thinking about it much beyond that. But I also didn't want to remove both of my breasts because I thought at that time that I would have another child and I had, I was hopeful for that. And so I wanted to be able to breastfeed again. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard, I think, when you're going through the diagnosis and people are wanting you to make these kind of quick, rapid decisions, it's hard to really know what how that's going to impact your life. And you know, some, there's sometimes now when I kind of wish I was more symmetrical and maybe that would mean being flat all the way across. And then there's other times where I am thankful that I only removed the breast that had the cancer because, you know, breasts are erogenous zones and it's nice that I have options mm-hmm. as far as that goes. Like, But those things did not enter my thought process at all when I was deciding about breast surgery. And I feel that I was really lucky that I had a surgeon who heard me and did what Mm -hmm. I wanted. He didn't make me feel like, you know, I think that some women get this kind of, uh, they get a lot of input from Mm -hmm. the surgeon as far as like, well, this, you know, men prefer breasts and wouldn't you be happier if you were symmetrical and we can give you the breast you've always wanted. Like there's just a lot Mm -hmm. of other discussion that happens around breast surgery. I feel like I was really lucky that my husband and I talked about it. We decided what felt right for us. I talked to my surgeon about it. He was like, sure, whatever you want. And he made me like super flat on that side, which I'm now aware of that some women don't even get. Mm -hmm. They think they're going to be super flat. And then it turns out that their surgeon is leaving skin in case they decide to have a expander and and reconstruction later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, um, I just feel really lucky that he just, he heard me and he did it. And I've been very happy with the result. Wow. That's good. Wow. How did you, um, uh, select your surgeon? Like, how did you find him or her? Um, again, I feel like that just sort of worked out in my favor with very little research and Santa Cruz were pretty, um, you know, our proximity to Stanford and mm-hmm. other, you know, the big facilities in San Francisco is pretty close. And so my oncologist is Stanford trained, but practicing here in Santa Cruz, which I was really happy about that I could just keep my treatment local. And then through him, he recommended a few or a couple different surgeons. And I just went, I think with the one, the first one on the list and he turned out to be great. He's retired now. So I feel oh. also lucky that I got him right before. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, yeah, it just, it was kind of a word of mouth thing. And I didn't, you hear so much about second opinions and everything. Now I, I didn't even do that. I just, I got really lucky with, yeah. Yeah. with my team right off the bat. Hey everyone, it's Heather and I'm here to tell you about the study buddies. It's an awesome new indie podcast hosted by best friends, Wyatt and Cassidy. And if there's one thing I know about podcasts, it's that shows hosted by best friends are obviously the best kind. Now, The Study Buddies is a podcast where Cassidy and Wyatt meet weekly to talk about research articles they find fun and interesting. They talk about the purpose behind the research, how it was done, and what the daily implications of the findings are. <laughs> there are new topics every week from what is love, to sand dollar reproduction, to serial killer calling cards. I mean, there is always something new to learn. I learned, for example, how to colonize Venus. It's true. And you can learn it too. <laughs> Wyatt and Cassidy are very charming and have put together a quick, easily digestible show. So get your learn on and check them out. There are new episodes every Tuesday. And follow them on Instagram at the.study.buddies. Woo! You talked about feeling guilty for being diagnosed with breast cancer. How did you cope with that? I mean, obviously we know like no one should feel guilty, but it's hard to just yeah. let that go. Mm -hmm. I think that it's funny. I'm, I'm talking to you from my bedroom right now. And one of the, the first nights after I was diagnosed, I just remember sitting up in bed. My daughter and my husband were asleep and just remember it was really stormy night and watching the wind kind of whip through this tree we have in our backyard and feeling like that was really symbolic of this turmoil that I was mm. feeling and that guilt that I was feeling for this, this diagnosis coming. And I think it really stemmed from being a mom and feeling so responsible for this family unit and mm -hmm the, the kind of equilibrium and peace of that family. And then to be the one that had this diagnosis. And at that point, I was really wondering, you know, is it because of something I ate or I drank or, you know, it, mm -hmm. where, where was the catalyst for this cancer? And at that point, I really didn't know that it's so, um, that it can be so random and that it really isn't something that I did to myself or I did to my family or some like bad decision. I made some crazy night in college or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, well, I, you, um, sorry, you mentioned yeah, you have family say, history. Yeah. Well, I do, except it's interesting because I did all the genetic testing and everything has come back negative and, so the kind of the word on it right now from the genetics counselor and my oncologist is that there's probably some gene mutation and we just haven't found it yet, mm -hmm. but we don't know. My dad had pancreatic cancer on his mm -hmm. side of the family. There's a fair amount of breast cancer. Some of those women on that side have tested positive for the BRCA gene. Me and my dad both tested negative for it. So it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Wow. Um, but just makes me also realize that it's 
it it can it, it can happen to anyone. You know, yeah. you can be super healthy, you can mm-hmm. have no family history, you can be young, you can be all these things. And even they'll tell you that breastfeeding and for you know having babies are supposed to also decrease your odds of having it. But I was literally breastfeeding at the time, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's just um, it's just something we have to let go. The diagnosis is not some big uh, stamp on your life that you failed. You know, it's just. It's just what it is. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to articulate that. <laughs> so with the family history and you had you knowing some history of whether it be breast cancer or pancreatic cancer, were you like touching your boobs a lot? Do you, did you give yourself breast, mm-hmm. breast exams? I wish I could say yes, but honestly, no. I... I think that I was probably more in touch with my breast, literally and figuratively, because of the breastfeeding. You know, it yeah. was, um, it really kind of brought me, that whole process of pregnancy and and then breastfeeding brought me more in touch with my body in a positive way than I had ever been. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the first time that I felt kind of what the point of my body was. It was the first time I felt comfortable with the curves that I had and, you know, my body image. And I think that because of that, I also was touching myself more and becoming more aware of this body instead of, and I think I was kind of just uh, taking it for granted for a long time. And so that kind of, for me, was the start of even being physically aware of, the the little twinges, the lumps, the bumps, mm-hmm. like all those little things that happen with breastfeeding. That was kind of my first awareness of my breast beyond something that mm-hmm. uh, was kind of, I don't know, annoying. I think I, I developed these large breasts pretty young. And then I think I spent the first, you know, several years of my having them kind of resenting them mm-hmm. and pretending that they weren't there. Yeah. I've heard that before from like friends who developed large breasts early, I guess, because people always seem to have an opinion about them, you know, in school and stuff like that. Right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, which is rude. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> you totally. to yourself. <laughs> um, I'm like, there's so much to unpack. So wait, you're currently cancer free. Did you? I am. Yay. Congrats. Yeah. Right. yeah. How long was, how long was that fight? So I was in treatment, active treatment for about 13 months because I did the course of having the um, chemo first. So I did Taxol and Herceptin and another cocktail called FEC, which I can never remember what all the different things are in there. But one of them is the the Red Devil. I did all of that Mm -hmm. stuff first. Then I did my breast surgery, and then I followed it with five weeks of radiation. Plus, I was still doing Herceptin for – I did Herceptin for about 13 months, and then since then, I have not been on any treatment. So for me, Mm. it's been about five years now of no treatment. And and at this point, do you you just go in like once a year, or do you go in six months? I was going six months. Yeah, I was going every six months until, um, or I think, you know, it was more frequent than it went to six months. And now I just had my five-year checkup with my oncologist earlier this year, and he uh, 
graduated me to more once a year. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny because in that, <laughs> in that whole time, he's kind of become my number one doctor. And I really wasn't seeing a general practitioner, hardly ever seeing even a gynecologist because my gynecologist retired. And so at this five-year mark, he was like, I love you, but it's time for you to actually have other relationships <laughs> with other doctors. So. It's time. I broke up with you. So, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So, yeah, I'm, I'm starting that process of actually seeing, like, other doctors for things not breast-related, which is so funny, and been, it's, it's kind of a new thing of having to tell someone new my medical history. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of nice. And also it's like, but I just would rather see him for everything. So. Right. Yeah. Cause you know him. He knows <laughs> yeah, you've you. been through a lot. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you, we've gone through this big thing together. Mm-hmm. I feel very yeah. bonded to him and um, yeah, but I also get his point too, that he needs, he needs <laughs> other people to be paying attention to other parts of my uh, body. So true. Yeah. yeah. But you still see him yeah. once a year then right Mm -hmm. well and actually it's kind of funny because of making wildfire i have this great excuse now to go to his office every other month (laughs) and bring him a wildfire (laughs) he doesn't know um but that's yeah i I figured out a way to still see him quite regularly (laughs) (laughs) i do too you met you talked about how you wanted to have a second child so Mm -hmm. i guess after all the chemo are have you tried or did they say that's did someone say that's not possible or is that and yeah obviously if if yeah yeah no I'm I'm really happy to talk about that um so I like the official thing that I was told when I was more recently diagnosed and going through treatment from my oncologist was he wanted me to be Ned or, you know, no evidence of disease for a good three years before I would try getting pregnant. So for the first three years, I didn't worry about the fact that my period wasn't really coming back or that it was really irregular, but that was my situation that I had a period literally on, I was like having my period when I was getting my very first chemo treatment. And then I didn't see it again for a good long time. But, you know, I wasn't worried about that. I knew that for some people it took a long time for all of that stuff to kind of kick back into gear. I was 35, so I knew also that there were some women who didn't have their periods return. But um, for me, around the three-year mark when my doctor said it would be okay or he would be comfortable if I wanted to try to get pregnant around that time, I was just having really irregular periods. And so my husband and I went to Stanford and we met with a um, fertility oncology expert there. And at that point they did blood work and they tested hormone levels and said, unfortunately that it would be probably really hard for me to get pregnant outside of some medical help. And I just decided at that point that, um, that route wasn't really for me. I didn't really want to do IVF and everything else. And Mm -hmm. so we decided to do a lot of, um, alternative treatments like acupuncture and, um, massage and, you know, things like that, some tiny other Chinese medicine and just, you know, 
a good old college try to get pregnant just on our own. And it didn't happen. And at this point now I'm still in the, I'm still trying to kind of come to terms with that. I'm Mm -hmm. 41 now. I still see babies and feel really sad and Mm -hmm. feel like I really want that. And then on the other hand, like I said, my daughter's 10 and it's pretty great that I have all this time to work on wildfire while she's at school and I'm kind of in a new phase. So I'm, yeah, cancer made me infertile. The treatment at least Mm -hmm. made me infertile. I'm really sad about that. I really wish that there had been more discussion of that. I, that was one thing that my oncologist didn't really talk to me about. We didn't do any kind of fertility preservation. I didn't Mm -hmm. save any eggs or anything like that. Um, yeah. And that would have been, something I would have liked to have known more about at that point. I just didn't even know to ask the question. But at mm. this point, I feel like it's been going on for so long that I'm, I'm coming to terms with it. And I'm, it's, it's looking like that's the, the writing on the wall for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, I'm yeah. always sorry mm-hmm. that for all the casualties or, you know, the stuff that kind of happens on the yeah. side. And all those like sub losses, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a really great way of putting it. Yeah. I feel like there's all these little things that, you know, the breast and for, for a lot of people, their whole body changes, you know, after treatment. And there's also this, um, I don't know. I don't think that you can go through something like this or continue to stay in treatment and not be affected in terms of your, your kind of maturity and your outlook on life. Like everything kind of shifts and changes and it's a little, it's a little lost. Like you say, that's a great way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you, are you in like any talk therapy right now or do you just like cope with it within your family and have that? I'm sure. Sorry, I'm no, sure no. wildfire mm-hmm. yeah. oh, for assists sure. a lot yeah. with that and speaking with other survivors and people going through very similar situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wildfire has been wonderful for that on a very personal level for me. Meeting so many women and having conversations just like we're having now has been really helpful for me. On top of that, I'm in several groups online Um you know, support groups. And then I do have a therapist that I see about once a month Mm. um, with no plan to really ever stop that. And it's not that we talk about cancer every time I see her, but it's been really helpful for, for when it kind of sneaks up, the big feelings sneak up and they can come out of the blue. You know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. nice having her in my back Mm -hmm. pocket for, for that. I, I really, I'm, I feel really grateful for that. And what about your husband? through all of Mm -hmm. this does he is he like a does he help with wildfire at all or does he see a therapist or anything like that yeah so he doesn't it's interesting because he handles stress and um and emotional things differently than I do. I'm very much a talker and very like external and whereas he's very internal and more stoic. When 
we were going through my treatment and everything. I really worried about that with him and mm-hmm. felt that that it would be great for him to have other co-survivors to talk to, but he never really seemed to want that. And I think more for him, he wanted a break from cancer and it was more nice to get together with friends and not talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So the one thing that we do have, and we did have then was that his parents live in our house. Mm -hmm. We, um, we made a decision many years ago to, to kind of make a home that was joint. And so they have an apartment up in our upstairs. And so when I was going through treatment, they already lived here and they were able to help Mm -hmm. with um, my daughter. And then they were also available to be a resource for Joe, whether he wanted to talk about it or just, you know, he and his dad could go out to dinner together and talk about baseball, you know, and talk Mm -hmm. about nothing that was cancer related. I think that was really great for him. As far as now, he's always open to talking to me about it when I need to talk about it. He has not been the one necessarily to bring it up. I think he worries that it's ripping a scab off if he brings up the fertility stuff or Mm -hmm. if he wonders, you know, if he wonders aloud about recurrence and things like that. But if I want to talk about it, he never makes me feel bad for wanting to talk about it or need to talk about it. And then as far as wildfire goes, he's like my number one fan. And I am mm-hmm. hoping that someday mm-hmm. <laughs> I can give him a job. I don't know if he wants a job with wildfire, but mm-hmm. it would be awesome if it grew <laughs> if it grew to that that point where he could work for me. That'd be cool. And what does he World do? domination. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, um, he works for a library. He has a, um, a job that he's had for some crazy number of years at this point I think like 22 years oh my gosh working for for a library yeah amazing so yeah so I guess we both have managed to surround ourselves with paper and ink and printed (laughs) words yeah sweet very romantic (laughs) I was yeah yeah. it's like whimsical (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah how long have you guys been together so we are one of those funny couples um that have been together since we were teenagers, actually. Oh, I knew it. He, I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, um, so we actually were both homeschooled in our high school years, and we met as part of a group of, our moms were in a group of homeschooling moms, and oh. the kids would play, and the moms would chat and mm-hmm. help each other out. So we had a group of teenage teenagers who were not going to a traditional high school and we hung out and so I'm a little older than him I was 17 and he was 15 when we got together Mm -hmm. and um and yeah we've been together since through lots of ups and downs and craziness whether it was um cancer or um both my parents have passed away now Mm -hmm. and um just lots of life stuff but yeah we we've been married for 12 years and together for oh my god 24 years <laughs> wow. wow i love it oh congrats oh that's amazing i just want to i can't wait for you to have these wildfire meetups i just want to go up there and, <laughs> and hug you guys yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that sounds great uh you guys sound awesome you guys are awesome um <laughs> oh boy I mean, I'm sorry. I'm looking Heather's at my taking notes. taking it all in. I see it. I know. 
I mean, also just thank you so much for being so forthcoming and like, cause I also felt like, you know, some of these questions I get nervous asking them, you know, especially about mm-hmm. fertility and it does, it did, it does feel like you're ripping, you know, like, Oh, should I ask about this? Cause I don't want to mm-hmm. pick at a scab. Um, sure. but yeah, so that was just a, a good way of articulating that. Um, yeah, well, and one thing I found from from wildfire is that people really do want to tell their stories. I mean, I, I certainly think there are some people who go through something like cancer, and if they're, you know, no evidence of disease, they they do just want to put it in the rearview mirror and not think about it and move on. But I think that I'm finding at least the majority of women our age Mm -hmm. do want to process and talk about it in a safe place. And instead of it feeling like a scab being ripped off, it's more a confirmation like, yeah, you went through something really scary or you're still dealing with something really scary. And it's, it's kind of like a, without sounding too cheesy, it's like a warm hug and it's like a acknowledgement, you know, I see you and I hear you. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Well, and that's what I think wildfire serves as is like a source of community. So if someone's going through something again, similar to someone else, then they don't feel quite as alone or they can kind of Mm -hmm. grow from other people's experiences and know what to ask. Like maybe know, like you can ask, what are my fertility options? Can I freeze my eggs and things like that, that you may never have thought of before. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, too, that, you know, in addition to all of the other things that come along with the diagnosis, I think that the fear of reoccurrence is something that people are afraid to talk about. And, I, Danielle, you can probably talk more to this, but I think that there's so much division between the stages because of there being so much fear about what a stage four diagnosis means, whether it's de novo or a reoccurrence. And I feel that we can alleviate some of those fears or at least acknowledge them a little bit better than everyone just being afraid to talk about it or being afraid to ask those questions or just share their experiences. And so one of the things I wanted to do with wildfire is make it a place where all of the stages could talk about either their own specific you know, experience of it or say, Hey, even though I'm stage zero, I also worry about that. Or even though I'm Mm -hmm. stage four, I, Mm -hmm. I feel that way too, you know, and it could be more of a shared space Definitely. for, yeah, for removing some of that fear or at least, yeah, I, I, I feel hesitant. Yeah. To say that the fear is gone, but at least like we can make a space where the fear can be acknowledged, you know? Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to even know how to feel, honestly. I, I haven't known mm-hmm. how to feel in these pa- in this past month with everything that has started going on again. Um, mm-hmm. It's, but it's nice to know that there, you know, that there's people. It's, it's just does feel like a lonely process, and mm-hmm. to know that there are other people out there that do don't know how to feel either, or are scared, right? Um, it's or it's helpful. okay to yeah. not know how to feel. Yeah, I'm I'm a blur, so. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's hard to wrangle all of the, the emotions, emotions mm-hmm. 
And sometimes mm-hmm. I don't know, like maybe they shouldn't be wrangled. Like maybe let them, mm-hmm. let them all feel, yeah, let them all blur, <laughs> yeah. let them do what they do. Angry, scared, confused. Yeah. It's, Absolutely. It's hard to wrangle the fear, you know, just being a friend or even try to like help Danielle overcome any fear that she may have. You know, I guess that's why we find these outlets like Wildfire, like the podcast, you know, to just mm-hmm. try and make heads and tails. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right. I think that it's really, um, it, it can only benefit, I think, to have these outlets where we talk about things and we share. And like I said, there's some women and men probably going through breast cancer who that's not of interest to them. And you can opt out. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. nice to make a space where people can find each other or, you know, listen or read and know that they're not alone, whether they want to chime in or not. It just, I think, really, really helps to know that you're not, you're not alone, even though maybe you don't know anyone else in your actual neighborhood or your, your family, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And just like feel, yeah, validated. I see you and I hear mm-hmm. you. Yeah, the hug. <laughs> hug. Mm-hmm. Um, I did mm-hmm. want to ask, how has uh, going through breast cancer, I mean, I think it's once, once in it, always in it, but um, how has that affected your parenting or do you worry about what mm. the future holds for her or, again, like also don't have to answer <laughs> these kinds of yeah, questions? Yeah, no. I, it's a, it's a really interesting time right now, actually, um, in our family because, and I'm only hesitating because, um, I'm going to say something like really personal about my daughter. Um, but I don't think she'll be listening to this podcast, so it's probably (laughs) fine, but she, um, she's just started developing her own breast in the last year. And this summer, you know, we were actually bra shopping and, Um, in addition to the fact that that's like shocking to me and really surprising that we're already there, it does bring to mind the breast cancer. And Mm. I have not talked to her about anything, you know, stemming from my, the fact that she has this family history now. Um, we haven't gone there at all. I've never really wanted her to worry about that, Mm. but it definitely feels like it's on the horizon that I will have to talk to her about, um, you know, breast exams and what that means and all of that stuff. I feel like that's a very specific way that cancer is on my mind when it comes to her. Mm -hmm. As far as like on the broader level, I feel that the breast cancer brought us probably even closer than we were before. And we're, very close and I'm very attached to her and vice versa. But having a diagnosis like that, where I realize that there is no guarantee of how much time we have together has just made me more appreciative of not every day and every moment, but, you know, just in general Mm. of our time together. And it feels very, um, I feel very lucky that I had her, when I did, if, if infertility was something I was going to have to face, I feel really lucky that I had her and that we can have this relationship together. And I also try not to let the cancer overshadow 
everything or not everything has to be poignant and wonderful and amazing either. You know, we, we do definitely have our ups and downs, but I think it's just made our little family more aware to be um, grateful for each other. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And with the, when you do have like a talk with her about, you know, just being aware of changes in her boobs and it doesn't, you know, have to be, this whole unpacking of your whole history and everything. Cause I do believe Mm -hmm. that every woman should be connected with her boobs and doing self breast exams and things like that. And just like making it like little pamphlets. She wouldn't even talk to me. She'd (laughs) be like, leave it on my bed. (laughs) Little hints. Yeah. Like more than hints. Or like like, little door hanger thing. It should just be part of like your, like, I don't know if you see like a bump on your arm or something, you're like, Oh, what's that? Just Mm -hmm. like part of your own health. And there's just like, we, we spoke with this one company, booby butter Mm -hmm. and they Uh have this like really cute. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of them, but they have a really cute. um, I am. Yeah. It's just like a pamphlet, I guess, but not, not Mm -hmm. so clinical. It's this like cute little package that you can get with a little booby sticker you can put on your mirror to remind yourself to do a breast exam. Exactly. Right. Like, well, it's so interesting, too, because I think that with each new generation, there's an opportunity to kind of remove some of that body shame and body mm-hmm. discomfort. Mm-hmm. And so my hope for her, you know, outside of all of the cancer stuff is, yeah, that you could just have your your boobs or whatever it is part of your, just be part of your body and yeah. something that yeah. you're aware Not of. Like, like a said, stigma around it. You know? Right. You don't have to be yeah. alone, like in a dark room doing these scary breast <sighs> exams. It's just like, like Danielle right. would do them in the shower. Right. When you were growing exactly. up and you're just like, Oh, I'm just touching my boobs, which is just another part of my body. Like we're all squeezing right. our boobs <laughs> right now. <It's> true. <laughs> <laughs> do any of us have bras on? No, no. I do. It was a little oh. one. Bralette. <laughs> Eh, that doesn't count. It doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> Free the boob. Free the boob. <laughs> Free the nipple. Yes. Um, yeah. We did. Um, recently, I got, I, I somehow didn't have this already on my bookshelf, but I recently bought Our Bodies Ourselves. And um, mm-hmm. we, my daughter and I have started reading it a little bit together, Aww. particularly the section that's on breast changes. And I will say it's really kind of fun to be talking to her about these kinds of things with something like this book, because there's this one page in particular I'm thinking of where it shows kind of a side diagram of lots of different breasts through different stages, you know, like prepubescent through, you know, postmenopausal and kind of all those different things that are going on as far as like glands and sagginess or not, you know, just growth and changes both outward and inward. And, it's kind of fun from a science standpoint just to talk to her about it and have her develop a a kind of sense of awe for her body and what it can do and what's Mm -hmm. happening. Like I said, versus just feeling totally ashamed and just wanting to wear the baggiest clothes possible. So no one has to know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No one can know. (laughs) Put them away. What lies underneath? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wrote down our bodies ourselves. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to pick that up from you. Yeah. I'm looking at <laughs> oh, it right you now. Should. It's <laughs> fantastic. You mentioned that you joined some online support groups. I was curious if you had any, if what they were, or if you 
had any mm-hmm. recommendations? Yeah, so most of them are through, actually all of them are through Facebook. And I belong to many, but I would say right now in this particular season of my own you know, growth and healing and everything that I'm finding the most connection with the groups that are for women who've not had reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so the one that I'm most active in right now, I think is called Flatties Unite. <laughs> and it's so, <laughs> you know, flat all the way across or the uniboob. Mm-hmm. And it's just giving me this extra confidence you know people post pictures of themselves either with clothes or without and it's just kind of normalizing the the asymmetry that's kind of a new thing that I'm out in the world as Mm -hmm. so for me that's probably where I'm most active in those and then I also belong to I think the biggest one is called knowledge is power and that's also a breast cancer support group I don't think it's age specific. I think it's all ages in that one, but I find it very um, friendly. You know, I think some of the groups sometimes, unfortunately, online can Mm. go into a direction of not being so nice. So this Mm. one seems to stay pretty friendly, but also a little bit deeper conversations. There's a lot of sharing of studies and things in there. Um, And then there's an offshoot of that one that I love that is, I think it's called healthy eating breast cancer or something like that, where people just talk more about nutrition and things like that. Nutrition. I know that we keep talking about nutrition amongst ourselves. We're like sugar. We're going to try to not eat it. (laughs) I know it, but it's so hard. (laughs) It's everywhere and delicious. Um, Are you really hard? Yeah. Do you adhere to a specific diet or keto or any of that? Yeah, so that's interesting that you should ask that because I've recently in the last year made some big changes that stemmed from a conversation I had with my oncologist at my five-year appointment. At that time, I was feeling very frustrated with the, I think it was probably um, perimenopausal kind of stickiness of weight that I was having a lot of trouble with losing any weight. Mm -hmm. And after treatment, I had gained Wait, um, it's hard to know if some of that was just pregnancy stuff um, slash, you know, breast cancer. But in any case, I found myself weighing 50 pounds more than I wanted to weigh. And so I was there talking to my oncologist and he asked, you know, is there anything else you're concerned about? And so I said, well, yeah, I've been working really hard to lose weight and I'm you know, I'm trying really hard not to eat dairy and sugar and all this stuff, and I'm having a hard time with it. And he actually recommended a book that completely changed everything for me called The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. And he is a doctor out of Toronto specializing in late-stage renal failure and so people with diabetes. And he has found that most weight gain is a metabolic issue. You know, it's something going on hormonally with insulin. And so my oncologist is telling me this and saying, and he's a very trim guy and his wife is a surgeon and um, also very slender. And he was just telling me that they read this book and have been embracing it. And so what it is, is intermittent fasting. Oh yeah. And I think that's getting like some press now. And so people are Mm -hmm. starting to be aware of it. Um, 
but basically I read the book and like we already talked about, I adore my oncologist and so I felt like, well, he's the smartest guy I know and he's telling me to read this book. I gotta read it. So, yeah, so I read it and it really resonated with me and it felt like the missing link to this process of trying to lose this weight and kind of regain some control over my health and my body. And so I put into practice the intermittent fasting Mm. and, um, I'm actually, I've lost 60 pounds this year. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's amazing. It's been a big, six zero for me. Six zero. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I reached my goal and I'm just feeling, I, I feel, it feels really good after a cancer diagnosis, I think in particular to feel some level of control over my body. It just felt so out of control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, to kind of feel like I've got some, um, some deeper level of understanding of how my body works and Mm -hmm. how hormones work and all of that good stuff. So, um, I'm so excited to hear about uh, this because I was recently (laughs) doing some research on, Intermittent intermittent fasting Mm -hmm. and um, because I have digestive issues, separate thing. But um, I've been reading a lot in regards to that. You based your intermittent fasting diet off of this book? First reading that one, I've read a couple of others and I have joined a couple of different groups. And again, on Facebook there, I found a few um, intermittent fasting groups that I like. Um, And there's lots and you kind of have to find the one that resonates, I think, more with with you as an individual. But um, yeah, I I basically have patterned my particular fasting off of he mentions different protocols and different ways that you can go about doing it. And my husband actually does it now as well, though he does a slightly different Mm -hmm ratio. Um, when you start to fast, people talk about fasting hours to your eating hours. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've kind of settled into just eating one meal a day. That works for me. But for my husband, he, you know, fasts through breakfast, but he eats lunch and dinner. Um, and so I think like different people can find the ratio that works for them Mm -hmm. and, you know, depending on what their goals are, you know, figure out what works for them. And that's kind of the nice thing about it is that it's very flexible. Mm -hmm. The main thing is just having your fasting hours balance out your eating hours or, or for me, you know, be more than my eating hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you do that for a certain amount because you were saying you have one meal while you're fasting Mm -hmm. a day and then you do it for a certain amount of days and then you go back to kind of like three meals or what have you. Yeah. For me, it's, I figured out that it was much easier just to do the same thing all the time every day. Mm. So I, I just, for the most part, just eat one meal a day. And if you think about it in terms of, it's not just um, maybe it, it, that sounds like a very small amount of food, but if you think about it in terms of if you went to a restaurant and you had say an appetizer and then a salad and then your entree and maybe you had dessert and oh drinks. Gosh, it's like, so much if food. If you think about that amount of food. Yeah. And it's that, that you would consider that a meal, you know? Right. Yeah. You can think about it. That amount of food for me, I spread that over about four hours. So I, yeah. I fast for 20 hours and then I'm eating over. Gotcha. Not necessarily for four hours every day, but yeah. That's <laughs> I like that idea food. though. I'm into that. <laughs> four hours. Four hour straight. meal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a big part of it is kind of resetting our um, expectations. I don't know, because we've gotten Mm -hmm. used to restaurant culture and just get 
like they just decide the portion they give us they charge more so they mm-hmm. give us more food so they can mm-hmm. charge more but it's like this is not for one human to eat in one sitting most of the time <laughs> right so it's also right. just like resetting exactly. how much your stomach can intake yeah well there are some interesting things um that I discovered about myself when I started experimenting with fasting. And a lot of that has to do with one, you know, the culture and how, like you said, how much food we're served when we go out or mm-hmm. how much when we get together with friends, it's about eating. It's kind of this thing we do socially. Um, and then on the other side of it is how much of it is mental. And, you know, it's, it's noon, therefore my stomach is growling or, yeah. you know, it's, it was kind of learning for me, like, when am I truly hungry? Mm-hmm. And also, is that, is it an emergency? Do I need to like eat right now? Or can I drink a glass of water and see how so I feel much, in an hour? Exactly. You know? You're yeah. usually just thirsty and you just confuse it with <laughs> right. hunger. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a really great time this year has been a great time for me to learn all, a lot of stuff about myself and my body as it relates to to hunger and eating and, and all that stuff. And I've also learned that the word fasting scares the heck out of most people. So I am so grateful that you asked about it so I could talk about it, <laughs> but it's also like, like I don't necessarily always tell people about it cause they kind of freak out with that word. Yeah. How can we, let's rename it right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> What's another exactly. word? What's not as scary? Resetting well, your often, diet. Yeah. And I tend to tell people instead of intermittent fasting that I'm doing intermittent eating. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> that sounds better. Yeah. Way better. Yeah. That's why you work, you know, that's why you work in, in print, baby. <laughs> you know how to right. come up with that yeah. copy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. Thank you for talking about that. I know. Thank you so much for yeah. talking about everything. So having gone through everything and having the magazine, how do you feel about your understanding of breast cancer and how do you feel now in general even though I think we have an idea of that I'm gonna yep (laughs) yeah well I think it's it's kind of interesting and it's what we were talking about how some people have a diagnosis and then want to just get back to life as normal or you know get as far away from it as possible not talk about it not think about it or even some people who are living with stage four who are not out in their communities as being stage four, you know, they have a very different way of going through breast cancer. And for me, I think that it was kind of this thing I tried to do. I tried to put it in my review mirror, but I just realized that I wasn't the same person anymore that Mm -hmm. I had been prior to the breast cancer. And I also realized that it had taken me a really long time Well, I say that like I'm 80 or something, but it had (laughs) taken many decades for me to become the person I was when breast cancer found me. And so it stands to reason it might take several decades for me to figure out who I am now post breast cancer. Mm. And so for me, having wildfire and having this new community of women that I now know who've been through it, my relationship to it is one that I think about every day because of the work that I do, but I also am thinking about it personally and feel that I'm not necessarily who I am today because of breast cancer, but it definitely is there. The scars are on my body. The scars are, you know, there psychically, and I'm not ashamed of that. 
I am just on this path of discovering what that means for me personally. And I think that that is kind of a scary thing for some of my older family because they are more like, why are you dwelling in this space? Like, why, Mm. why does it have to be about cancer? You know, put it, put it away. But for me, healing from it and kind of folding it into the fabric of me is about talking about it and is about thinking about it and reflecting on it and not trying to just shove it down. Acknowledging that it happened. Yes. And I think that my, the way that I feel about breast cancer now or how I am with it is I, um, I don't know how much time I have Ned. I don't think anyone does for me, maybe because of my proximity to so many people who are living with stage four, it's very apparent to me that we, we never know how much time we have Ned. And Mm -hmm. so I'm just trying to, trying to enjoy this time. And that's, I feel like that's all I can ask for. I hear that. Beautiful. Beautifully said. (laughs) Speaking our language, you know. Um, Yeah. Well, man, thank you so so much. Thank you. For everything. For making the magazine. I know. For reaching out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Reaching out, for being you, for coming on and sharing everything. Just thank you so much. You're a one, yeah. a lovely person. I know. The magazine is beautiful. Um, Can't wait for our meetup. Yeah, it's true. Santa Cruz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> heck yeah, truly. And, uh, I know you mentioned it before, but if you could say where yes. the people can find you. Yes, absolutely. So the website is wildfirecommunity.org. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram, both by Wildfire Magazine. And then I wanted to offer, if it's okay with you guys, I'd love to offer a discount to your listeners as well. So, yeah. So if anyone wants to subscribe to the magazine or buy single issues, there's single print issues available back um, a little bit over a year now where they can use code, well, this sucks, all caps, and I'll give 10% off. Thank you so much. Everybody go get some magazines definitely buy issue number four (laughs) the caregivers but they're all beautiful oh and also shout out to emily garnett who you had in issue number three Mm -hmm. we met her we talked to her and she's just another amazing resource in this world i know Mm -hmm. absolutely (laughs) it's growing thank you so much thank you thank you um so yes instagram wildfire meg Facebook, Wildfire Mag. Yeah. Uh, on, it's on the internet. We said the website. Yeah. <laughs> uh, collect them all. Use the code. Well, this sucks. All caps. Ten percent off. All I'm caps. saying it again. I'm being redundant. Heck yeah. Drill um, it in there, Heather. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you, thank and send you. love to your family, please. Oh my gosh. Yes. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Um, and I guess we'll hold your friends. And touch your boobs. Touch your boobs. boobs. We'll give Bob a little break. Yeah. He's chilling. He's chilling. (laughs) We won't howl with him right now. But yeah. Thank you again, April. Thank you, guys. Thanks for everything you do and are doing. I'm just so, um, I'm so happy to to be in this community with you guys. Same. Likewise. We'll talk to you later. I know. Bye. Oh, I'll, I'll stop the recording. 
Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our lovely Lauren Naylor for her amazing portraiture skills and creating our cover art, to our sweet boy Tom Odo for our lovely music, and a great many thanks to my you caring supporters and donors. Lauren Naylor, Nene, Merrick, and Amy Woodard, our old roommate. You can follow my blog at wellthissucks.me, follow us on Instagram at WTS Podcast, Facebook at WTS The Podcast, and if you like what you heard, please, please, please subscribe, rate, and review. Yeah, thanks. Love you.